Hello and welcome to another episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini and in this episode we're going to talk about immunizations and vaccines. Now in the last 20 years or so there's been an anti-vaccine movement which is based on some very disturbing claims. Primarily among them being that the MMR vaccine, which stands for measles, mumps and rubella, is the cause of autism. Other claims charge that certain vaccines can cause other learning disorders or social disorders or physical disorders. But are those claims valid? Do they have any real scientific proof? For that matter, how safe are vaccines and immunizations? Who makes them? How are they tested? What kinds of research, safeguards, and oversight is done before a vaccine is even allowed to be used in public? Are they just thrown together in a careless disregard by big pharma corporations in order to gain big profits, as the anti-vaccine movement claims? Or is there a much more scientific and careful approach with regulations and oversight from both medical groups and the FDA? Where well, our guest on this episode of Special Parents Confidential is going to answer those questions. Mary Wazinski is a registered nurse and supervisor of the immunization program at the Kent County Health Department located in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She's graciously agreed to this interview to provide credible and accurate information. And what she has to say is very important for every parent to hear and understand. I started off by asking her about her background and how she came to work for the health department in immunizations. Um, I've actually been um, a nurse since 1978, and my background was maternal child health. I worked in neonatal intensive care for 12 years in Kalamazoo before I moved back to Grand Rapids. I worked at the health department for three years in the 90s and then stayed home to raise my kids. And when I came back in 2003, our services here are still maternal child. So I spent most of my career working with moms and kids. And our WIC program and our immunizations are integrated. So I worked in both, both programs. Yeah. And the more I came to know about immunizations, the more I realized I needed to learn. And I was fascinated and so in 2007, I took this job as immunization program supervisor. Hmm. Well, that's great. So you're the supervisor. You're more or less the director of the program? or Yes. Okay. Um, now, the study in science of immunizations goes back probably about 200 years from what I've little bit I've been able to research about it. What was the first vaccine, and how did that all come about? Well, I'll kind of start with, um, you know, the 1700s, although they were practicing what could be considered early vaccine, um, really very, very early. It was called variolation. Mm. But if you remember back to your grade school days, a lot of people talk about Edward Jenner. Right. And that was 1798. Wow. And, um, yeah, he um, thought that he could protect people from smallpox by using a related disease or a related virus, the cowpox. Oh, okay. And so he, he took some pustule liquid from the cowpox and put it on the, the arm of a, of a child to try to protect him from smallpox, mm -hmm. and very surprised that it worked. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. That was a very long time ago, but remember, that was 1796, 1798. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until almost 100 years later that Louis Pasteur proposed the germ theory of disease. Ah, okay. So back then, we weren't even sure what caused disease. Right. And then again, Louis Pasteur in 1885 um, first used a rabies vaccine in humans. Oh, no kidding. So, yes, way in the 1700s and the 1800s. Wow, so this really does go back a long ways, and, of course, techniques and knowledge has improved considerably since then. Oh, yes, 
very much so. Right. Well, that leads me to my next question, of course. How is the vaccine made today? And I, I know that uh, that's probably several days' worth of explanation there, but uh, what I'm looking perhaps more into just how much, you know, the kinds of research and trials and how long does it take an average vaccine to be approved for public use? You know, every vaccine is different, um, but there are a lot of safeguards put in. But how they're produced depends on... Um, what the antigen is, and an antigen is just anything that is foreign to the body, mm-hmm. any kind of live or inactivated substance that the body doesn't recognize as self. So the first step is you have to generate the antigen. How are you going to do that? You have to grow it. So viruses are grown certain ways, bacteria are grown certain ways, and our science has produced something called recombinant proteins, and that's a, some kind of complex chemical reaction that I'm not sure about, but mm-hmm. so you have to generate it. And then you have to, um, after you grow it, you have to isolate it from the bit, from the material that you grew it on. You have to purify it to make sure that it's safe. And then they add other components called adjuvants. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of people have problems with this step, but that's what makes our vaccine safe. Right. And it also makes them more effective. So it lo- allows us to use less antigen. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot of the safety that's come about is like um, if people got 10 vaccines, it would have less antigen in them than one vaccine from 20 to 30 years ago. Wow. So our science really has come a long way. And then the next step is to just put it in the package and make sure it's sterile and ready to go. Hmm. Okay, so there's a lot of uh, microbiology and a lot of other uh, um, uh, related subject matter that I'm not really all that familiar with either, but there, there's a considerable amount of... Uh, work and research and effort that goes into making those. Oh, definitely. And especially in the United States, mm-hmm. um, you, before you can do anything, you have to submit an application to the FDA that explains how it works, how it's going to be manufacturing, all of the testing that you've done so far. And then once um, the FDA approves it, then it goes into a very, very small clinical trial It's called phase one. Mm-hmm. And then if they find that it's safe, it progresses on to phase two, and then phase three is what they call an efficacy trial. And then um, then they have to apply for a license to the FDA. Wow. And once the vaccine is approved and it's used, they continue monitoring it. They're called, I think it's called like phase four trials, where they continue while it's in use to monitor it, make sure it's safe, pick up any rare or delayed reactions that they might not have seen with the smaller studies. And then we have um, a reporting system in the United States called VAERS. Mm-hmm. It's the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System that um, people who give vaccines, if they notice a reaction, they um, report it, and they study that data all the time to make sure that the vaccines stay safe and effective. So really, it's they're very, very closely scrutinized to make sure that they're safe. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of safeguards and standards implemented. Yeah. That's great. So um, now going on specifically to the MMR uh, vaccine, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, which is the one that everyone seems to be uh, most uh, concerned with these days. How long has that been in use, and what is it made from? Well, um, it's made from some different things. Okay. But um, it's been, measles has been around, the first one was 1963, Mm -hmm. and then the second um, safer one was made in 1968. Mm Mm-hmm. The mumps vaccine has been around since 1967, and then the rubella since 1969. Okay. And then scientists figured out in the early 70s 
how to um, put the three of them together to make one vaccine. Mm -hmm. Okay. So just to make it a little easier, because there's nothing that kids like better than getting stuck with needles all the time. Right. Right. And that's been a lot of our research is finding out how we can safely give combination vaccines to decrease the amount of pokes that the kids do get. Right. So the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine combination has been around since the 70s. We're talking 30, maybe 40 years. And there has been constant and continual monitoring of that vaccine. Right. Right. It is a live vaccine. Mm -hmm. So um, like the measles, it's grown in chick embryo cell cultures. Mm -hmm. um, And then the growth medium is also they put another solution with it. So every vaccine is grown a little differently. They find the one that grows the best so that they can get the best probably bang for their buck, the best yield. Okay, that's good. Now, as we know, in the past 20 years, there's been a movement against vaccines, and some of that is claims that uh, contamination in the vaccines is causing autism or other disorders in kids. Knowing what we know and knowing how much research and monitoring and scrutinizing that's been going on, are any of those claims even remotely valid? No, I don't believe the claims are valid. And working in immunizations, I would never say that um, a vaccine does not have risks. Mm -hmm. You know, no vaccine is 100% effective. Right. No vaccine is 100% safe. Mm -hmm. What we try to do is talk to the um, clients or the parents of a young child about the risks versus the benefits. Mm -hmm. So um, if the risks are one in a million and the benefits are one in a hundred, Mm-hmm. then you, you make that informed choice. Right, yeah. So, yes, there's been lots of claims. They claimed that the um, mercury in the vaccines was causing autism. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though they couldn't find any kind of causal effect, mercury was removed from our vaccines in 2000. Right. So there's only mercury in the multi-dose flu vial. Mm-hmm. We're still seeing increases in autism. Right. That's probably with better diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So then they switched and said, well, maybe it's the aluminum in the vaccine. But they haven't proven that either. No. It's a common metal found in nature. It's in breast milk. It's in formula. Yeah, I read an interesting comment the other day with both mercury and aluminum being natural is that you can get almost the same amount of mercury and aluminum in your system by swimming in a lake as you can from a vaccine. Right. And the mercury that was in it is ethyl mercury, not methyl mercury. And so... Methylmercury is the one that damages the nervous system so that it is a different form. So, you know, they're continuously looking at ways that they can make vaccines safer and more effective. But that adjuvant or those things we're talking about allow us to use less of the antigen and they allow the vaccine to stay purified so that it doesn't um, have issues when we give it. Mm -hmm. So now one of the biggest problems that we have in combating the nonsense surrounding the anti-vaccine movement is that many of the experts that they claim that are on the anti-vaccine side really don't have any valid medical training. How important is it for people to understand that they need to talk with qualified medical doctors about their concerns? You know, I think it's very important. Um, And I don't claim to be an expert on chemistry and, you know, biomedical research. Mm -hmm. But I do know that... um, If I'm going to trust my physician, I need to trust my physician in all areas. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, if I have a medical question, I'm not going to go to a banker. Right. I'm not going to go to a movie star. Yeah. And so, yes, I think that um, there's been kind of a fear of big pharma and and medical. And, you know, the doctors are in it because they want to help people. Mm -hmm. 
You know, they have a servant mentality, as do I as a nurse. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that a lot of the people who are against vaccines, they want to do the right thing for their kids. Mm-hmm. They're going on the Internet. The first thing that comes up are the not credible sites. Right. They take a little piece of something and put it together. Or they think that because B follows A, then A must have caused B. Right. So you got the MMR vaccine. Your child was dosed with diagnosed with autism, therefore it had to have been the MMR vaccine. Right. So I think it's very important that we um, that we evaluate the websites and that we have someone who has more knowledge um, help us look at information. I think parents need to make an informed choice. Um, I think it's their right to make an informed choice. However, um, going back many centuries, a lot of the cases that have been tried um, we also have to look at public health, mm-hmm. and sometimes public health trumps personal rights mm-hmm. because we have to balance that out by keeping our entire community safe. Right. So that's you know that's very difficult. Well, I grew up. Uh, I'm uh, much older than <laughs> uh, probably I would be normally, or a parent uh, of kids, the kid, the age of the kids um, that I have would be. But I can. I remember polio because I grew up. Uh, I was uh, my my years of going through grade school and all that were basically in the 1960s. So I can remember the scares with polio. I remember getting measles and i remember how dangerous they were and kids had to be quarantined because right. of measles or mumps or rubella they had to, we had to stay out of school and i had uh the mumps and measles when i was a kid and i had to stay out of school a lot and so having the vaccine yeah it hurt for a little bit but it was a lot better than being sick all the time and and on that uh comment how has there been a resurgence of measles and mumps and rubella and other diseases like diphtheria and whooping cough and all that because of parents not vaccinating their kids? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, We have, every state has mandates to go to school. Mm -hmm. However, 20 states, and Michigan is one of them, accept personal or philosophical exemption to vaccine. Mm. And what's happened is that many more people are opting out of vaccinating their children, Mm -hmm. and yet they're still sending them to school. Oh, boy. So... Um, take, for example, measles. Right. It was considered eliminated in the United States in 2000. Mm-hmm. And we've seen a huge increase in cases since then. Wow. 2014, it was it was very big. Um, there was, and I know it's bandy numbers around, but 28,660 cases in the United States. Um, actually, that's pertussis, so I apologize. Oh. I'm getting my numbers mixed up <laughs> oh, here. Okay. But in 2015, so far this year, we've had 169 cases of measles. Wow. Just from January to May. You may have read about the huge outbreak at Disneyland in Florida. Right. Last year, we had um, a lot of outbreaks as well. Um, And many of that was due to Americans who were not vaccinated or under-vaccinated leaving the country and then coming back in. Right. Two Amish workers went to the Philippines. They've had thousands of cases and several deaths from measles. So um, measles and pertussis, the whooping cough, is making a comeback. Mm. So in 2014, there were 28,660 cases of pertussis, but in Michigan, we had 1,424. Wow. So we are seeing an increase. Um, And many of that, I know we talked about credible information, but 
Much of that goes back again to Andrew Wakefield, the doctor from Britain, that published some research that was later proved false. And he's no longer a doctor, I should mention. His license was revoked. He is not allowed to practice in the U.K., and in fact, the British Lancet took out, um, they just retracted everything from his study. Mm -hmm. However, he still claims that um, his research was valid, and he's still fighting vaccination. So it's kind of sad because... He's kind of the father of the anti-vaccine movement mm-hmm. because many people then stop vaccinating their kids. And they, we've had, especially in the U.K., several hospitalizations. There's been deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, we get a lot of travel notices and that tells you um, um, how many cases of measles are in different countries. France had a huge outbreak. So we've really had to backpedal mm-hmm. um, to try and, you know, I wish we, had a, I wish we knew what caused autism. Right. You know, I know it's not the MMR vaccine, but it really has set us back because I was looking up, um, you know, from preparation for talking to you, there was two women in the 1930s in Grand Rapids Mm -hmm. who helped develop the pertussis or the whooping cough vaccine. Right. I thought that was interesting when I first learned about that. Um, But then someone wrote a book about them, Mm -hmm. and the big comment that I thought was interesting is that... um, when you save lives and there's no disease, mm-hmm. no one knows about you. Right. So that's not news. Mm-hmm. We've sort of become a victim of our own success. Right. Well, I was just going to make the comment that, you know, I think one of the perhaps unfortunate things that we did with all the success of vaccinations is that we came up with this term that the disease has been eradicated. And the simple fact of the matter is it hasn't. It's still out there. It's just that we immunized everyone against it. Right. And so no one was getting it because of the immunizations, not because the de- the viruses or the germs or whatever that caused it just suddenly left the planet. Right. You have it right. We have it's called herd immunity or community immunity. If you keep your immunization rates high, people won't get sick. Right. And we're below that threshold now, and that's why we see these diseases making a bigger comeback. Right. They're going to come back because they're still out there. Right. That's mm-hmm. uh, it's a very sad situation. And out of curiosity, as a follow-up to that one, uh, with all the children who are not being vaccinated now, have we seen examples of kids getting autism who nonetheless were not vaccinated? Um, yes, and I don't have that exact statistic in front of me, but yes, there are kids who have not been vaccinated and they still have autism. They're looking for some kind of genetic component or something familial. Mm-hmm. I'm not too familiar, but on the autism spectrum disorder, um, there's kids who didn't have any vaccines, and yes, they have autism. So that completely disproves the theory right there. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's really, uh, that's just uh, mind-blowing, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Uh, it's really ridiculous about this. Um, with all the nonsense that is out there, and one of the things that I wanted to maybe point out that people should pay attention to is when you go to some of those uh, anti-vaccine sites, you'll discover that they all have almost carbon copy, word-for-word word duplicates of that single report. They have no new evidence they have no updates or no further research like you would find on a more credible website. And that's, the, I guess, what I wanted to ask is, what are some of the more reliable sources of credible and accurate and research-based information about vaccinations that people could uh, uh, take a look at? Well, there is a list at um, 
immunize.org. Okay. It says reliable sources of immunization information. Mm-hmm. But the Centers for Disease Control, mm-hmm. you know, they have scientific-based um, articles that people can look at. The American Academy of Pediatrics has one. Mm-hmm. And then, like I mentioned, that immunize.org. Mm-hmm. Um, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia also has a great website, and they have a newsletter for parents. Ah. And that's... Um, it's vaccine.chop.edu, but CHOP stands for Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Okay. So there are lots of uh, lots of sites out there. And, you know, what I would ask is that when um, parents are looking for information, if you Google vaccines, your anti-vaccine sites are going to come up first. Right. I've done some research, and I can't find any religion that is against vaccines. Hmm. Even the Catholic Church, there were some <laughs> vaccines that were started in some fetal tissue back in the 60s. Ah. And so people use that as the fact they shouldn't get vaccines. But the American Conference of Bishops has come out and said, yes, they'd like to see more research done, but that um, the greater good is protecting people. Right. So it's interesting when you start delving into it a little further. Right, yeah. But you have to get past all the nonsense sites first. You do. And again, it's you have to weigh risk and benefit. No vaccine is 100% safe. No medicine that you take is 100% safe. Mm-hmm. You know, you always weigh the risks and the benefits before deciding on something. And you know, I guess I really firmly believe that it's the parent's right to choose. Mm-hmm. But I also believe it's society's right to say, no, you can't come to school or you need to um, not be here if there's an outbreak of a disease. Mm-hmm. Because I think that even I'm a parent myself, mm-hmm. you know, I want to protect not only my kids, but I also want to protect their friends and the people around them. Mm-hmm. My pregnant relatives, where that baby's growing inside, if I wasn't protected against measles and I gave that disease to my um, relative's baby who could be born, you know, blind or deaf, I, yeah, I could not live with myself. Right. So, we have a responsibility to our community and our society, I think, as well as to our children. Right. Well, I, I heard another comment uh, a few weeks ago that I thought was quite relevant. Um, the person said that, uh, you know, although autism is a terrible disorder and it's, uh, it's uh, you know, it's debilitating in its own way. There are kids with multiple problems who have autism. The simple fact of the matter is that no one has ever actually specifically died from autism autism does cause problems that can uh you know make it harder to treat for a medical standpoint but it is not a fatal disease whereas measles mumps rubella whooping cough diphtheria polio and smallpox and anthrax oh. those are all fatal diseases or have the potential to be fatal diseases that's true and so uh you know do you want your child to live with autism or die of a potentially fatal disease mm-hmm. that that is uh you know can be treated and treated successfully through an immunization? Right. Right. Okay. Well, that's uh that's really great information though that you've given us. Um any any last thoughts that uh you would recommend to parents who are still kind of uncertain as to which way uh to go with this? I would recommend the parents who are uncertain um do some research on the credible sites. I recommend they talk to their physician um, because people who are really and truly anti-vaccine, I'm not going to change their mind. Right. I'm just not. Um, There's a kind of a movement in this country toward going green and everything natural. Mm -hmm. 
which, you know, that's great, but nothing can be 100%. And so that's one reason people are against vaccines. Hmm. So the small percent that are really 100% against vaccines, I'm not going to change their mind. What I would like to do is the people who have questions is give them resources that they can look at and make an informed decision on the best choice for their child now and in the future. We don't always think about that. You know, the we have two cancer vaccines, the hepatitis B vaccine. We give that to babies at birth. Mm-hmm. And the HPV vaccine, which 90% of cervical cancers and other cancers are caused by that. And we have the opportunity to protect not only our daughters, but our boys from genital warts. So even though our country has really low vaccination rates, the incidence of cervical cancer has already decreased 50-some percent. That's amazing. It's huge. So not only think about your kids now, think about them. If you give your kids the very chicken pox vaccine, they're not going to get shingles. Right. They need to go to college. I know, I believe there's very few colleges that will say, well, come on in if you haven't had your vaccines. So I like to think about, you know, not only protecting my kids now, but protecting them um, later in life. So I would just um, ask parents that they look at all the different sources, talk to people, and make an informed decision. Right. Yeah, because I can all, like I say, I can remember the pictures of the kids in the iron lungs and all that stuff from the days I was around, too. I stood in line to get my sugar cube. Oh, yes, me too. Yep, I can remember when they first came out with the sugar cube, and I was so grateful I wasn't going to get stuck with a needle. Right, right. (laughs) But but, uh, they do make a difference, and, uh, you know, it's a momentary pain versus a lifetime of terrible disease or even death because of a terrible disease. Right. And a preventable one. Right. So, well, thank you so much for talking with us. I think this is uh, some very important and valid information. And I'm going to uh, put a link on our website to all those links that you talked about uh, so that people can go right to those after listening to the podcast or while they're listening to the podcast and check out all the information that's there. Great. All right. And uh, could people get a hold of you, too, or uh, send you an email, perhaps, with some questions if they're local? Sure, they could send me an email. Okay. Um, My... My name or my email is Mary M A R Y dot W as in wagon I S as in Sam I and as in Nancy S K I at uh, one word Kent County M I dot gov. Mary Wazinski, thank you so much for being part of Special Parents Confidential. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Once again, that was Mary Wazinski, who is a registered nurse and the supervisor of the immunization program at the Kent County Health Department in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And as we always do at this point, a reminder that if you like this episode of Special Parents Confidential or any episode we've done, please share our site with your friends, family, and all your connections on social media. You can do this easily with the social media buttons on our website. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, add us on Google+, or use any of the other sites like Tumblr, LinkedIn, Pinterest, StumbleUpon, Reddit, or other social media sites that you use. You can also sign up for our email service and have new posts and podcast episodes delivered right to your inbox the moment they're available online. We're also on iTunes and Stitcher as a free subscription, and if you have a moment, feel free to write a review about our podcast. Anything you can do to help spread the word about Special Parents Confidential will help us to be able to continue these podcasts. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.